If you have a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look at those 18 verses. We're in a transition week this week from one series to the next. Last series was on quiet. The next series is called Sunday School, where we're going to be looking at classic Bible stories from the book of Exodus. So as a transition, I thought we would look at a classic Bible story about being quiet. It's a perfect segue from one to the next. We're looking at the prophet Elijah. He's perhaps the most famous of the Old Testament prophets, definitely in the top two. Elijah had an absolutely brilliant career. If there was a hall of fame of prophets, he would have been one of the original inductees. He won a lot. In fact, the 17 or so chapters before this tell of some of his incredible feats One of them is a very iconic Bible story. He's on a mountain, and he's facing 400 prophets, and he prays for fire to come down and burn a water-soaked altar, and it dies. Later, he raises someone from the dead. This guy did some incredible things. The power of God was on his life. He once prayed a prayer that a few thousand years later, the Apostle James would hold up as the uh, type of prayer that every Christian or every person of faith should pray. He said something to the effect of Elijah is just a dude, a guy, a man, a human, just like every one of you. But he prayed for rain not to fall, and it didn't fall. And then when he prayed for it to rain again, after three and a half years of drought, it did. Exactly after that moment is when we're picking up the story. And so Elijah is coming off an impressive career, but maybe the most impressive moment of his entire career. There's three and a half years of drought. He prayed for the rain to return. It begins to rain. Rain in the scriptures is typically, outside of the flood, is typically a sign of God's blessing pouring out or revival occurring. And so things are looking back up for Israel after a very dry season. Elijah, supernaturally actually, uh, by the carrying of the wind, runs very quickly to the capital city, beating the king on his chariot. He arrives at the capital city to what should be the pinnacle of his career, where he dethrones uh, the the sinful, evil king and queen, uh, where he then um, anoints a new king and where he returns Israel back to the glory days of following God. That's how the story should read. And so we pick it up in that moment. Ahab is our first character. He's the current king, tells Jezebel, who is his wife, she's a real work, all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets, that's the prophets of Baal, with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, get this threat, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Now, certainly the great prophet who has won many victories is not going to be chased away by a threat from a foreign queen. Or is he? For the very next words are, then he was afraid. The guy who carried a supernatural strength, perhaps unlike any other human in the scriptures. 
who could pray and the elements would respond is now terrified of a threat that within 24 hours, his life will be ended. Isn't it interesting what makes us scared sometimes? How we can see God's hand of victory, his power, his strength, his grace, and his mercy flowing through all of these different areas of our lives, but then one threat comes up and it cripples us. And so Elijah, in all of his strength and all of the might that God had poured into this guy's life, is now terrified. And he does what so many of us do when we're afraid. He arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, 120 miles away. That's a long run, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. He's afraid. He isolates himself, and he runs and he hides. Maybe in your fear, you've done the exact same thing. Maybe not actually isolated yourself, though perhaps you have, or you just practically isolated yourself. You closed everything in. You shut your mind to outside thought. You didn't let anyone know what was going on inside of you. And the exact moment when you needed somebody there with you, you ran from them. That's what he did with his servant who had been a very faithful servant and a very good friend. And the moment when he needed a servant and a friend, he isolated himself from the one person who had gone through so much of this with him. And thus we see human nature. A threat arises that sends us terrified and makes us run. It wasn't enough for him to just run 120 miles away from the capital city and Jezebel. Instead, he takes it one step further. It says, but he himself, in other words, by himself, away from his servant, went another day's journey into the wilderness, into the wild. Now, the wilderness in the scripture, with the rare exception of John the Baptist, the wilderness in the scripture always indicates a place of dry, a place of wandering, a place of rebellion, a place of running from God or facing the enemy. So, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and he sat down under a broom tree. I don't know what a broom tree is. I didn't Google it. But I can tell you today what the broom tree is metaphorically. The broom tree is the place of absolute exhaustion. The broom tree is the place that you get to in life and you're so tired, you're so worn out, you fought so many battles that you don't have the faith for one more fight. You don't have the strength or the courage to stand back up and to face the threat one more time. Said another way, the broom tree is the place where the dream has died, where the hope has vanished, where the picture of the future does not look nearly as good as the past. And so void of strength and void of faith and void of courage, you don't know what to do, so you just sit under the broom tree exhausted. So here's what we want to see this morning. What happens to us in our exhaustion? How does God respond to our exhaustion? 
and what can happen on the other side of it. Those three things this morning. Are you familiar with the broom tree as I talk about this? The place where you just look and say, I can't do it anymore. I can't love this much anymore. I can't be this hurt anymore. I can't keep on going. I can't rebuild one more time. I can't keep driving. I I can't keep trying. You're going to see some language here from Elijah. Maybe it'll relate to you. So he sits under the broom tree. Then he shows us the first thing that human nature has a tendency to do under the broom tree. He asks that he might die. The first thing that happens under the broom tree is we begin to think completely irrationally under the broom tree in the place of exhaustion. If you caught earlier in the story, why is it that Elijah found himself isolated in the wilderness? Because he didn't want to die. And now he's in the wilderness, and what does he ask? That he might die. Elijah, if you wanted to die, you should have just stayed in the capital. Would have saved you 120 miles of running. Jezebel could have just killed you within 24 hours. No, in the broom tree or under the broom tree, in our place of exhaustion, in our place of defeat, we begin to think irrationally. And we start to have these thoughts that we would never have if we weren't under the broom tree. Thoughts like, uh, God has forsaken me, or I've messed up so much that it'll never be good again. Or I'm isolated and alone. Things will never get better. Everything is now broken and shattered. We start to have these thoughts and our mind begins to go crazy and we fill in the blanks and we draw out conspiracies and we tie all of these things together and we think everyone's thinking about it. Everyone's talking about me. Nobody likes me anymore. And we just sit under the broom tree in our irrational thinking. And it produces fear and it, and it produces distrust and it often makes us push away people who actually love us because we think they're caught up in it too. That's the first step under the broom tree. We're just getting going. Second thing that happens under the broom tree is he says, it is enough. It's enough. He looks up and he says, God, my ministry, all this work that you've done through me, it's enough. It's over. It's done. What we do secondly underneath the broom tree is we like um, uh, go down to this like lowest common denominator of negative thinking. We become fatalists or we become pessimistic and we get under the broom tree in our irrational thinking and we start saying things like, uh, it'll never happen again. It'll never grow again. I'll I'll never get this again. I'll never have that chance again. And, and, And we just fill our head or our mind begins to create these thoughts where everything out into the future looks bleak. We use words like, it will never happen or I will never blank again. And in the place of our exhaustion, in our, in, our, in, our, uh, in our lowest moments, in our isolation and fear, irrational thinking turns into fatalism, which then the third thing that begins to happen under the broom tree. He says, I'm no better than my father's. This is a blatant lie, by the way. Elijah's forefathers had wandered the same wilderness he was now sitting in for 40 years in rejection and rebellion of God. 
That's who his fathers were. Elijah had spent his life prophesying, creating supernatural things through God's strength and power. Now, underneath the broom tree, the next thing or the last thing that we begin to do is compare ourselves to every other failure or negative thing we've ever seen. We start to say, I'm no better than this. I'm no better than that. I'm no better than my past. I'm no better than the generations before me. And we create all of these false comparisons on uh, looking and saying, and here why, or they're a picture of what my life is going to look like. And so nothing's ever going to get better because I'm just like that person. Regardless of what God has done or regardless of what God could do, we begin to um, sink into our hearts and to our minds that we're no better or no different than every other person who has ended up exactly where we have. And this is how it's going to play out now. That's the broom tree. That's the place of exhaustion. It's where Elijah is at. By the way, we're seeing a picture of a spiritual truth uh, sown all throughout the scriptures. Here's the truth. You don't get to have Mount Carmel experiences without also knowing the broom tree. You don't get to have only the victory and not the defeat. You don't get to have only the success and no failure. You don't get to have only the ups and, and not the downs. And you might say, well, where is that in the Bible? Every single story, every one of them, everyone who does great things for God, everyone who walks in his power and his strength has the mountaintop and the wilderness. And so don't say, God, I want your mountaintop, but not be willing to walk through the wilderness. How we walk through the wilderness, though, will matter. But what matters more is how God responds to us in the wilderness. And so in Elijah's place of exhaustion, where his mind is running with irrational thinking, false comparisons, and pessimism, how does God respond? It is enough now, Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He wants it all to end. says he lay down and he slept under the broom tree. The first thing that God lets us do in the place of our exhaustion is sleep, is rest. Notice he doesn't judge him. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't tell him, get back up and go back to the capital. The first thing he does is he lets him sleep and rest. I don't know how long the rest lasted, but in a little while into his rest, says an angel shows up and says, arise and eat. I don't know if you've ever been exhausted, but I'll let me tell you who a good friend is. A good friend when you're exhausted is the person who lets you sleep and then nicely wakes you up and has pancakes waiting for you. Because that's pretty much what happens here. He says, rise, get up. He makes them some pancakes. They might be waffles. I can't tell through the context of the letter. That's a good friend. And then you know what he does next? He takes another nap. You ever been too nap tired? 
Like one nap wasn't enough. So you woke up from first nap, you ate the waffles, and you thought, I need a nap. (laughs) Elijah had had so much success. There had been so much victory that the fall from the top was so hard, he was now too nap tired. And God knew he was too nap tired. So you know what God did? He let him take two naps. Because he knew that had Elijah gotten up after the first nap, he wouldn't have had the rest he needed or the strength he needed for the journey ahead. And one of the things we can do is hop back in too quickly without getting the proper rest first. You ever tried to wake up too fast and you start trying to do things? You're brushing your ear. You're not awake. You needed a second nap. There's times where we think, okay, I've got the strength. I'm back up now and I can keep walking. And then we try to do it again and we just find ourselves back in the wilderness. Elijah is not going to find himself back in the wilderness after this moment. Well, that's actually not true, but I'll explain in a moment. Now, he was too nap tired. He had to fully rest before continuing to move on. Now, as we talk through this today, I don't know where you're going to be at in the story. But maybe you just need second nap just to keep resting. But here's what happens. God keeps taking care of us in the place of our exhaustion. Oh, I'm so glad we serve a God who in the place of our exhaustion understands us. Because he's understanding Elijah very well here. But how can he understand? Oh, this is what's so good. Because he created humanity? No. I mean, yes, but not really. How can he understand? Look what happens next. It says, he looked... And behold, there was his head, a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. That's the pancakes. And he ate and he drank and he he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time. That was the end of second nap. But this time it says an angel of the Lord showed up. I've said this many times. It's my firm belief that whenever the angel of the Lord shows up, This is a Christophany. This is Jesus in the Old Testament showing up somewhere, which means in the middle of your exhaustion, what happens? Jesus shows up. And how can we trust that Jesus knows what he's doing in the middle of our exhaustion? Because he too faced the wilderness. And so he doesn't just come as the person who created the wilderness or as somebody who understands humanity because he made humanity. No, he comes as somebody who knows the wilderness because he would experience the wilderness. And so Jesus shows up, or the angel of the Lord shows up to continue to minister to Elijah in his exhaustion. Someone who would also would face the wilderness. And I wonder if there was more of a conversation between the two. But the outcome is this. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. To which I wonder if Elijah was thinking, what journey? I'm not going anywhere. I'm under the broom tree. And the angel's saying, no, you've had two naps now and lots of pancakes. It's time to go. 
You think everything is going to end right here in the wilderness. You think it's all over. You think everything is done, but there is still a great journey ahead of you. The end has not come. Hope is not gone. There's still a great journey ahead of you. But if you're going to walk the journey, he says, you better eat up. It says the strength of that food carried him for 40 days up to the mountain. The strength of that food. I've been thinking about that food. Whatever that food is that gave Elijah that strength for that time period. That food is the exact provision that you need from God to carry you on to the next season or through the time of difficulty. Some of you have experienced eating or consuming uh, or receiving that food before because that food was the exact word that you needed at the exact right time. It was the devotional that you opened up and it spoke to your heart like the words were jumping off the page and it carried you through. Sometimes that food is a friend who comes alongside you and says, I know you're exhausted, but God's going to restore and I'm going to carry you or walk with you. Sometimes that food is a spouse. Sometimes that food uh, is just something that you know God spoke this to you. I've shared this before. I heard something very clear from God about three and a half years ago. And that food is carrying me to this day. That food is God's love and grace through something tangible. So tangible, it's like you can hear it, you can taste it. And it's God saying, there's still work ahead of you. It's not over. So God speaks that to Elijah. And Elijah picks himself back up. Previously, he had been under a broom tree, exhausted, asking to die. Now he's going to go on a journey up a mountain. So here we have a prophet who went from the wilderness to the mountain. Jesus was not unfamiliar with mountains. He spent some time in the wilderness. He also spent some time on a mountain. One time, Jesus went up onto a mountain. He was with three of his closest disciples, and two people came with him. You know who they were? Moses and Elijah. The mountain that we're about to talk about and read about, two great things happen on that mountain. One time with Moses, one time with Elijah. In fact, many people think that the cave that's going to be referenced here later that Elijah is in is the exact same cave that Moses received the Ten Commandments at. And so Jesus... In his ministry, after being in the wilderness, goes up on a mountain. He brings three of his disciples with him, and he brings two other people who had some pretty significant experiences on a mountain with him, Moses and Elijah. And what happens on the mountain, the, that mountain, is the complete opposite of what Elijah, ex, Elijah experienced in the wilderness. See, in the wilderness, Elijah experienced irrational thinking, fatalism, and he was comparing himself to all the wrong people. On the Mount of Olives, when Jesus gets up on the mountain, it's the time where he declares what's going to happen, that he's going to die. 
Elijah went to the wilderness saying he wanted to die or asking to die. Jesus is on the mountain saying he's going to die. Elijah in the wilderness wanted to die so that everything would end. Jesus on the mountain knew he would die so that everything could begin. On the, in the wilderness, Elijah said, I'm no better than my fathers. I'm no better than my past. On the mountain, the, uh, God the Father spoke to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In the wilderness, Elijah's identity got lost and he associated himself with the wrong family. On the mountain, Jesus' identity was found. And God publicly, this is my son. Friends, you and I will walk through wilderness at a period, but we weren't made for it. We were made for the mountain. We were made for the presence of God. See, at the end of the text here, it says, he went to Horeb, the mount of God. He was saying, your season of wilderness is over. Now come up into my presence. The mountain throughout the scriptures is the clear place where God meets with people. Exhausted, tired people. It says, there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Which Elijah should have said, you're the one who brought me here. But instead he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. I'll be honest. His answer really isn't all that much better than it was in the wilderness. This is akin to you waking up and you're still not fully awake. He's still shaking off the sleep a little bit because his mind still isn't completely correct. Look how God responds to him. He says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Elijah was a good prophet. He knew his Bible. The last time that God had told somebody to go stand on this mountain was Moses. where the presence of God just briefly passed by, uh, just a small portion of it. I wonder if there's a part of me or a part of Elijah in here that's wondering, what's going to happen out there? Because here's what doesn't happen. Elijah doesn't actually do it. God says, go stand out on the edge of the mountain. And Elijah goes, nope, I'll just stand here. Thank you. It says, behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and the wind and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, earth, wind, and fire. Now here's what we know by studying the scripture that there are multiple times in Elijah's life and in the history of Israel where God had shown up in the earth, the wind, and the fire. That the earth, the wind, and the fire had represented God's power. They had represented his strength. They had represented his judgment. They had represented his supernatural provision and protection. And so God had often been in the earth, the wind, and the fire. In fact, Elijah, up to this point in his life, would have been used to seeing God in the earth, the wind, and the fire. 
That's what he would have expected of God, to see him in one of those three things. But in all three of them, he's not in there. It says, after all of this happened, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood. That's what God had told him to do from the beginning. Go out and stand. And he didn't. He stayed behind. But then he hears the low whisper. And something about the low whisper makes him cover his face and walk out. Something about the low whisper made Elijah go, okay, God, I'll trust you again. And he does what God had asked him to do. If you've ever walked through the place of exhaustion, you're beginning to understand this story because you know that the way God speaks to you before exhaustion and after it is different. That before the place of the downfall, before the place of of, I can't do it anymore, God would speak one way. But after you've journeyed through the wilderness, after you've journeyed through the place of exhaustion, you begin to hear God differently. And after the place of exhaustion, especially immediately after, what you're looking for is a whisper of a God whose grace and love and mercy whispers through and is so compelling, his love so deep, his grace so good that you step back out of your hiding. You say, okay, I'll go again. This is a God who speaks to us in the whisper, who knows our exhaustion, who knows to change his tone from the big and the strong and the powerful to the, hey, I got you. There's more to do, and we'll go do it. You got to step back out. Do you hear that voice today telling you, I love you. It's going to be okay. I'm here. And his grace is pouring out. So God pulls Elijah back out with the whisper, the gentle whisper of his love. And Elijah stands back out. And as he does, there comes a voice to him and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he gives the exact same answer. Now, everybody, everybody who has an opinion, which is everybody, has different opinions on what is going on here. So let me give you my hypothesis. I know a hypothesis has to have an if-then statement, so I'm not going to have an if-then statement. So let me just give you what I think. I didn't want any of the science nerds to lose me here. Thank you, ninth grade science fair project. I think what's happening here is Elijah is so exhausted. He's looking at God and saying, I really am done. I just can't do it anymore. I'm so tired. And so he gives the same answer. 
And then God gives him a different answer. He says, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. First off, he tells him this. You're going to go back because you're not completely done yet. I understand what you're saying. You're going to go back, but part of you going back to finishing what you do is you're going to journey back through some of the land that you just came through. But this time, you're not going to do it in a place of exhaustion. You're going to do it in my full strength. And so he goes back into the wilderness, but he doesn't stop this time under the broom tree. He walks right through it. And for some of us, in order to continue to follow God, it might mean that we have to turn back and to walk back through a place of defeat. But this time, not walk in it where it owns us. We walk through it victoriously. And we realize that the person that I am now facing this is different because I heard the whisper. And so now I can walk back through this in victory. And then he has more work for him to do on the other side. What is in essence happening, if we're being honest with Elijah, is he's in effect being decommissioned as the lead prophet. But before he's fully decommissioned, he has a little bit of work to do. And the work that he does is much different than the work he had done previously. This time, the work that he's going to end up doing is training people, um, uh, a ministry school. He launches like a prophet school, and then he's going to pass his mantle on to Elisha, who's going to carry it on from there. Let's rewind and say this a different way. Elijah thought and prayed that everything would end right then and there in the wilderness. God heard him, responded to him, met him, reached out to him in love and tenderness. Told him the work is not yet actually done and released him to go back and then to do ministry in a new way that actually magnified his impact. And the work he did on the other side of his exhaustion was different than the work he had done previously. The story of this prophet is a fantastic, incredible story. There's much to learn in it. It also points us to a better story and a different story of another prophet. That prophet, Jesus, would face another mountain. And on the night of absolute exhaustion, he would go up to the Mount of Olives. And you know what he would do there? He would separate himself from everyone else. And he would pray a prayer in exhaustion. And his prayer would be, if there be any other way. In essence, what Jesus is praying there is, if there be any other way other than me taking this cup of your wrath and your death, may it happen. See, in the first story, Elijah prayed that death would happen and God didn't deliver death. In the second story, Jesus is in essence praying, if there's another way other than death, I'll take it, and there isn't. He gets death. In the first story, Elijah says, it is enough. In other words, I have no more to give. Oh, in the second story, in the better story, Jesus is on the cross, and he says, it is finished. But when he says it is finished, what he's not saying is, I don't have anything more to give or, or, or there's nothing else that I can do. What he is saying is that 
all of the work, all of the work, your work and my work, it is all done right now here in this moment. Said another way, salvation is here. Jesus just finished completely the work. And then Jesus, we know this story, he dies, he goes into the tomb, back to the place of death, he emerges on the other side, and his ministry looks completely different than it did before. And what does he do? He trains people up, he releases them to carry on his work. And he picks one to carry on the work in a more powerful way. Who is it? Who's the Elisha in the story? You know who I think it is? The church. The church. So Jesus looked at the church and he said, I'm going to pour out my power. He said, it's actually better that I go and the Holy Spirit come to you to do even greater works. So Elijah, in the end of his story, passes his mantle onto Elisha, who does greater works than Elijah did. Jesus, on the other side of the greatest exhaustion, the cross, passes his spirit onto his church to do even greater works than he had done. 